This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. On our final show for the year, we're talking food prices. While floods and fires have caused some pretty drastic shortages of certain items in recent seasons, there are also some crops that are in or nearing oversupply. Everyone seems to be in the same situation, so the problem will be is the bulk of Queensland's pineapple crop is all going to come on over two or three months and then there'll be less during the middle of the year. By the end of the show, you'll have a full picture of how much the Christmas table will cost, and we'll get into that with Rural News with Serena Locke. Good morning, Serena. Hi there, Clint. Let's start off Rural News this week. An ABC investigation has revealed the owner of a livestock ship that sunk in a typhoon two years ago had dozens of safety breaches flagged by maritime authorities. Yes, so this is the Gulf Livestock One, which was carrying 600 heifers from New Zealand to China and sank in waters off Japan in 2020. 40 of the 43 people on board have never been found and they included Australians William Mainprize and Lucas Order. Alison McClymont is a producer of the ABC's investigative unit and they found that the ship's owners were operating while insolvent, that the ship had been detained in Darwin for weeks for engine problems prior to this. And the families have had no answers because it's owned by a shelf company and the ship's registered in Panama under a flag of convenience. So it's very hard for the families to take legal action against the, uh, the company in Dubai because it's owned in the Panama. The rules of the sea are just kind of lawless. You know, people can get away with a lot. And the Panama, you know, Maritime Authority hasn't released that report. It's been sitting there. I have called them on a number of occasions and they wouldn't tell me when it's being released, but it's, you know, the families don't hope for any sort of answers with that. And it's a tragic read, Clint. Well worth checking out on our ABC website and we'll put up links to that Gulf Livestock One story on the uh, Country Breakfast page. It's an important story to check out. Moving on, lumpy skin disease is edging closer to Australia's north with reports the virus has reached East Java. Yeah, the viral disease was first detected in Sumatra in March. Now, this disease is up there with foot and mouth disease in that it would be economically devastating if it were to make its way to Australia. Because it's spread via mosquitoes, there are concerns that a strong air current or storm could blow it to Australia. Now, Dr Ross Ainsworth is a Bali-based vet who has spent the last 40 years working between the Northern Territory and Southeast Asia. He says it's concerning how close these cases are now to Australia. So if, and it's a big if, if the insects carrying the virus can be blown across the Timor Sea, then every step towards the east in that direction is a bad thing. But Bali doesn't represent a risk for tourists taking it home, I don't think. A very small risk anyway. But uh, as I said, we simply don't know enough about this disease to predict it. 
After spending much of this year, especially in rural news on this show, talking about the foot and mouth disease scare, I am truly hoping that we don't start or continue through next year talking about lumpy skin disease. Mm, LSD. Well, we just need to watch these mosquitoes and they're building up in number. We know that for sure. Moving on, the competition watchdog has found stevedores on Australian ports are making hefty profits and grain growers are pretty unhappy about that. Yeah, so this is an ACCC report. It's found consumers are paying more for imported goods. Exporters are paying more for port services. That's on top of the disruption to trade from the pandemic. But the winner has been stevedoring companies whose profits have risen to a 25% margin. Wouldn't all businesses like to make a 25% margin? Grain growers are saying the ACCC's report into container ports and stevedoring is alarming and points to current regulation not being enough to constrain those container ports from using their market dominance. Now, Zachary Whale from the Grain Growers Organisation says privatisation of these ports has resulted in escalating costs and record profits for stevedores. As these critical assets have been privatised over time, there isn't sufficient regulation um, to actually make sure things like uh, port terminal charges uh, remain in check. And what we have seen is those charges have skyrocketed and that has a very material impact on the bottom line for growers on the ground. Now, there are plenty of them out there at the moment, Serena, because we are in an inflationary period. But if there was a gauge for the high cost of living, it might just be the price of milk. Yes, and the price for two litres of milk has skyrocketed. Frankly, it came off a low base, didn't it? Supermarkets had held down the price of their own brand milk for 10 years and then uh, introduced uh, price increases and now it's really skyrocketing. Consumers are starting to balk at the price of branded milk in the supermarket. According to Rabobank, shoppers are trading down to private label milk away from the more expensive brands. Michael Harvey is a senior analyst with Rabobank and he says the floods have disrupted a lot of Australia's production. And he says the latest CPI inflation figures were really telling. We had you know, food inflation at two-decade highs and when you, you know, break that out, it was broad-based, so it was across nearly every category uh, that consumers are buying food products. And, of course, dairy was a core component of that. And if you looked at the just the liquid milk category within the ABS numbers, you know, it, it, it posted its highest uh, annual increase since they began tracking records way back in the 80s. So, you know, the dairy inflation story is very much part of the broader food inflation story. Serena, you and I reported lots on the $1 milk wars that raged between producers and the supermarkets, and I've wondered for years what it would take to make them budge. They introduced that drought levy that was pretty temporary before it went back down to a dollar a litre, but it seems the needle has finally shifted. Yeah, and when it did shift, it then coincided with price inflation. So we're now mm. seeing, you know, that exponential kind of growth of prices for milk, <laughs> and I, I think that's been quite tough and you know naturally shoppers are looking at the fridges going how did it get to six seven dollars for mm. you know two liters um, when it was two dollars before macadamia growers are meeting the grinch this christmas australia's largest macadamia processor has slashed the price it pays to growers Yes, it's frozen those payments to growers in New South Wales and Queensland. Marquee holds over 40% of the macadamia market globally and recently cut prices to growers from over $6 a kilo in 2020 to under $3, that's halving it, with further cuts likely. Growers in northern New South Wales, of course, were badly hit by floods earlier this year and that will put many into hardship. 
And meanwhile, customers, you and me, are paying between thirty-six mm-hmm. to fifty dollars a kilo for um, you know shelled nuts in the supermarket. Rowan Liebman is a New South Wales grower who supplies Marquee. It means the cash flows evaporated. That means we're short on cash leading into the coming harvest, and um, there's a flow on in terms of real estate values. Um, people are having to make adjustments in their personal life because, you know, holidays are off, discretionary spending's under a squeeze. So um, it, it's the same, I suppose. Many farmers experience um, climate impacts. This is a commodity price disaster, really. That's crazy. You go from $3 to the growers to 36 on the shelf. There's a lag time, he was describing. So in the longer interview, um, and there's a story going up on the ABC website about macadamia prices. So yeah, check in on that. But to get more detail, there's just this lag time. And of course, processing, you know, price in shell to growers is one thing. Um, Mm. You know, the price of the processed nut and if it's salted and baked, then, you know, there are margins. But a lot of those margins are about energy prices. Well, while the largest processor we just heard from is cutting its price, for macadamia growers, not everyone is. Another processor, Suncoast Gold, it's grower-owned, it's a cooperative, and it's decided to pay a little bit more, $3.90 nut in shell to growers, because like everyone, inputs have gone up. Here's Julian Lancaster-Smith at Suncoast Gold. Macadamia prices, they'd they'd risen quite steadily to the growers over a number of years and started to drop off two years ago. But we need those numbers to settle at something that's um, workable for both the farmers and the processors um, moving forward so that everybody can work the farms and get the best quality product through to us um, to give us the best chance of valuating that and, and selling it in market. As promised, let's get to the Christmas shopping list and pork will be on many Christmas plates this year, especially as it stayed considerably cheaper than other meats. Yep, I know I'll be roasting some pork. (laughs) Rabobank analysts say pork prices have been steady over the last two years and year-on-year change pork is the cheapest meat, seen the least price rise. So whereas beef rose nearly 10% in 12 months, pork only rose 3.8%. Now, Central Queensland pork producer Laurie Brosnan says it's actually been a bit more expensive to raise these pigs, but he, for one, will start making his own power by collecting the pigs' um, manure and methane and generating electricity. At the moment, we're uh, reinvesting in our, our renewables. We're putting in new digester tanks. So we're buying power. We know what it feels like. Well, I truly know how it feels like. All our commodities that come in that we feed the pigs is at record highs or if not very close to it Um, you've got your insurance bills that everyone knows if if you've got a car it's all gone up um, and wages has obviously gone up as well see what i did there i started talking about ham and then we went to the manure (laughs) (laughs) well every time i hear one of those stories about uh, power generations it's always at a piggery i think because they've got such ample supply yes that's uh, (laughs) something pigs do well And for the third year running, Serena, I am happy to report that lobster is more available at Christmas time. Yes, well, we know this is partly on the back of China banning seafood imports. It led to scenes of live lobsters dying on Chinese uh, airport tarmacs. Now, rock lobster prices have had a tough couple of years, but according to the ANZ commodity data, the market has slowly but steadily recovered. Prices are up on last year, but still not back to those pre-pandemic levels. Now, ANZ analyst Madeline Swan 
says the industry has found new markets in Asia. All across Asia, really marketing rock lobster, not just as rock lobster, but also as a luxury seafood good, so the sort of good that will compete with king crab and snow crab and some of those other really high-end crustaceans and seafood. Um, so going into Japan, Singapore, South Korea, all those sort of areas that we would think of as being normal trade routes for Australian goods, the rock lobster industry has done really well to start establishing themselves in those markets, which, which bodes really well for the future. I spent the first part of this week gorging myself on WA Marin in the Ferguson Valley, so might be a sign to keep the trend running and have a crustacean Christmas. Yes, it's been a year of extremes this year, that's for sure. So happy (laughs) Christmas to you, Clint. Same to you, Serena. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, it's Cassie McCullough here, and it's that time of year again when we bring you the best of Radio National from the past year, plus some special summer treats. Fascinating and compelling talks from across Australia in 2022. So make sure you join me weeknights from six for Best of the Festivals here on Radio National Summer or catch up anytime on the ABC Listen app. This week, we're saddling up in central Queensland with a young equestrian rider who has her heart set on winning gold for Australia at the Special Olympics World Games. We'll join Tasmanian beekeepers who are honing their craft and learning how to breed their own queens, and we'll meet a paramedic and a teacher's aide who come home from a full day of work and get busy growing garlic in their spare time. Their bulbs are giving customers a local alternative to imported garlic, and they're a big hit at farmers' markets. It does take a lot of juggling, but we thoroughly enjoy to uh, come home from work, to get out on the tractor once it's germinating, to see it come through the mulch. It's such a wonderful feeling. It's lovely. I think that's the benefit of going to the markets too and actually selling to the people who are going to eat it and their response and how much they love it and appreciate talking to the grower as well. It's nice to be there. We'll meet those part-time garlic growers who are finding rewards in juggling farming with their day jobs coming up. First today, a young regional New South Wales man who was left blinded after a workplace accident almost 10 years ago has overcome mental and physical challenges and reinvented his life. These days, he mentors school students in the state's mid-north coast region, drawing on his own experiences to help and inspire others. Emma Siosian has the story. McClay Borger shares an easy camaraderie with boys at a Port Macquarie High School as he shoots hoops on their basketball court. (laughs) Hello, I'm Emma Siossian. I'm watching on as these students at MacKillop College on the New South Wales mid-north coast help guide McClay around the playground. He lost his sight almost 10 years ago in a workplace accident and now works as a mentor at the high school and an adjoining primary school. The rewards are many. I've been able to come in here and have a chat with the boys, all the different stories. They've got different backgrounds, but I really look forward to my Wednesdays here working with the Year 8 boys. It's a really good group of young fellas. It's just really nice to be able to relate, even though there's a 20-year difference between us, to be able to relate what they're going through not only their home lives but their school life as well and to be able to pass on a little bit of I guess wisdom that I've got of going through the schools and yeah doing what they're sort of been doing and offer that extra support. Mac has helped us to um, stay good in class and do our work and not get in trouble. 
Maclay was in his mid-twenties and working at a bar when he lost his sight after making a mistake while cleaning a beer line. He accidentally did the steps in the wrong order and his face and eyes were burned by the chemical used in the process. Definitely one, one, one little slip up you wouldn't think would be so catastrophic. Maclay spent eight months in hospital in Sydney where he underwent 13 surgeries. He healed physically but was left struggling mentally and emotionally. He turned to Lifeline and was encouraged to train at TAFE to become a mental health peer worker. He successfully completed that course which led to his current role as a student mentor. Being able to be back into a workforce and doing something that I really look forward to each and every week. It's been really good for not only, uh, I guess, the recovery and being blind, but also my mental health recovery, being able to be a part of a workforce and such a great workforce as well, um, definitely helps. Yeah it's, been, yeah, it's been pretty helpful with Mac around, helping us around in that. The leader of wellbeing behaviour support at MacKillop College, Warren Lauger, says Maclay is making a real difference in the lives of students. The biggest benefit is, is Maclay brings his own school experience but then also the adversity that he's, that he's encountered throughout his life and he's able to relate to those boys uh, in particular and sort of give them that guidance and that mentor approach which has been really good for these boys because they've been able to, to feel comfortable with him, talk to him about the challenges that they have at school. Ellie, you need to take him in the, around that way. You just guide him with your hand. Maclay is also a clear favourite at the adjoining St Peter's Primary School. I like when he likes to my desk. It's great. It's um, really good to be able to work with the younger kids. And, oh, there's no filter, so it makes a lot of fun. <laughs> the school's principal, Jeff Leary, says it's been great for the students to see the positive way Maclay embraces life. Children, in many instances, will try to explain their learning to him, so they're becoming a little conscious of putting their own learning into words. Mac has his own gifts to share with the children. His story is an inspirational story, and his presence amongst the children helps them to understand the notion of, uh, I'm not going to say the word disability, because I don't think he has a disability, I think he has an extra ability, uh, and it's really lovely for kids to see how he manages his circumstances and the very positive way he goes about his life. At home, Maclay is busy with his own three children, the youngest just eight months old. I'm lucky enough that my mates were all uh, still around and, and the big thing out of that too is um, yeah, the relationship I just started with my now wife. Uh, we, we were able to continue that on and from then, nine, nine, ten years on now, we've been together and, yeah, I think we're doing pretty good with three kids. His wife, Emily Borger, says he inspires all of them. Really could have gone two ways when he had his accident. I think I'm amazed by him every day, seeing just how resilient he is and, you know, he really has faced a lot of adversity. So many things could have got the better of him and they just haven't. I am just really proud of him. I think he's an amazing man and... We're all very lucky to have him in our lives. I read things out for Dad, and if Mum's not here, I help Dad. Doing everyday household tasks can be challenging for Maclay, and his seven-year-old daughter, Brooklyn, loves to help out. Steps. I 
let Dad rest his hand on my shoulder. Archie's usually on Dad's shoulders. Yeah, and I'm sometimes on Daddy's back. Life isn't always easy. The biggest challenge is um, just the normal everyday sort of stuff you do. Getting dressed, having a shave or even just walk around the house. But also the challenges of not being able to watch your, your kids grow or see the milestone events of getting married, the kids being born. That's hard. McClay and his family though are working together as they move forward and McClay says there's plenty to smile about. <laughs> but having just the, the support of your family, your friends and knowing that yeah, they're in your corner and pushing you. It's the time of the year where beehives are getting prepared for honey collection over summer. I'm looking down into the cell to see if there's eggs there because you need eggs for nurse bees to be around. To produce a strong and healthy hive, it needs a new queen bee. See how they're roaring? They know they're queenless. Last year, just over 7,500 queen bees were imported into Tasmania. That can't happen this season with restrictions now in place to prevent Varroa mite crossing Bass Strait. So beekeepers here need to raise their own queens. That sound there, what's that sound there guys? Queenless. Queenless, yep, thanks Scott. Typical sound. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith. I'm watching as David Gibson, a semi-commercial beekeeper based at Westbury in northern Tasmania, teaches a couple of people relatively new to the industry some of the basic techniques. So it's a day, day's work to graft your queens, then you've got to get them and make sure that they've set the queen in, in your grafting bar, make sure they're all working all right, you've got to set your hives up, you've got to feed them. Then day, day 12, normally I, I put them out into the nukes, into the breeding nukes like we have saw there with the cells, um, anywhere between day 9 and day 12, and then you've got another 14 odd days, so it's a, sort of a monthish process before you get a laying queen. Weather's an important factor for, um, for creating um, good queens. You need an average of about 18 degrees and seven or eight degrees of a night time. The mating flight is the most important part, so you've got to have good weather for that. You've got to have good, good drone flying around, which is the boy bee that does all the mating, and um, the, the queen will come back and she'll do what she naturally does, but it's, um, it's a really big hit and miss. And it, it is, it's exciting when you get a queen back and you go and check her to make sure that she's hatched and all that kind of thing and she's come back and she's laid within four or five days and you think, cool, yeah, it's a good experience. Burned Meyer has taken up beekeeping as a retirement hobby after teaching for the last 40 years. He manages six hives on the outskirts of Launceston. As a new beekeeper, I'm, I'm very anxious, like an anxious new parent sort of thing. So you worry to him more than you should. Um, end of the day, the bees know what they're doing and I don't. It's, it's, it's a challenge, it's valuable to have and, and my aim is to perhaps produce queens uh, to sell them on to others and there's lots of people who want to get into beekeeping which is something to be truly encouraged I think. Bernd wants to improve his strike rate at grafting baby queens. My success rate currently with grafting, this is my third go, my fourth go, I want to actually get above zero percent so 
see how I go. Anne-Marie Lachanta works on a dairy farm in Deloraine and also enjoys beekeeping as a hobby. And she's not the only one. In fact, over the past six months, Biosecurity Tasmania has received more than 80 new applications for registered beekeepers. My husband and I started, we started off with a flow hive. Yeah, just for something that we can do. Um, together and the kids have picked up um, an interest in it as well so it's our little family thing it's just a little hobby I guess for us all we pass on all the knowledge to our kids they get in um, our 12 year old boy he's right into it and he'll be grafting he'll probably have a better eye at grafting than I. (laughs) As long as their interest grows I find it exciting for them if their interest grows and they come and they try this and each year they try and do more and more and more and yeah and, and it will yeah once the bug bites or the bee sting so to speak it's very catching. So things I've learnt today is the sounds, different sounds that the, the hive makes especially when it's queenless, the raw um, and the variety of colours of the, the bees. I didn't realise there was that many colours. <laughs> But overall, it's been an enjoyable day. One beekeeper has said to me that your bee apprenticeship is 20 years and I've got a long way to go. (laughs) Northern Tasmanian reporter Larissa Smith compiled that report about beekeepers learning about breeding queen bees. And you can see more on that story on our website. Head online to abc.net.au slash rn. You'll find Country Breakfast under programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you for Country Breakfast here on ABC RN. Keep listening. We're heading inside the equestrian ring with a young horsewoman in training. And we'll get a lesson in growing and braiding garlic. This is Garlic Central. Central. (laughs) It's amazing inside this shed. I wish people could see it, but we can describe it. You've got ropes hanging from the ceiling with bunches of garlic hanging off it, all curing. It's a side, isn't it? I call it the garlic forest. We're slowly working our way through the forest this year. This garlic forest is a passion project for paramedic Richard Corley and his teacher's aid wife Sharon. The pair are growing, harvesting and braiding garlic in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland with some help from family and friends. We plant in April and um, harvest in August. Family and friends help us out. I've got nephews that help plant. We plant in one day. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. I'm here inside the garlic hanging shed on Richard and Sharon's property where they're producing a local alternative to imported garlic bulbs. We just feel wonderful that we can supply fresh Australian grown garlic to uh, replace the imports. We live at Como on the Sunshine Coast in the Noosa hinterland just outside of Kinkin. We're on 33 acres, which was an old ex-dairy bean farm and bananas. Over the last seven years, we've been having a go at growing some garlic, Aussie purple. We started just from getting a braid from a grower down at the Noosa Farmers Market. So we've slowly built up our numbers. From one braid of garlic, wow. Yep. And how many garlic bulbs did you end up producing this year? This year only 7,000. We did eight to nine the previous year. It was a good year this year. Not as well. Is that because of the horrendous amount of rain that we had at the start? We got our 300 mil there in um, late April. Was that in one day? uh, In one week. We mound the garlic and it came through really well actually. So it's a combination of a bit of the rain. We were selling the larger bulbs and this year we're keeping them for replanting. 
and we've just trialled this year as well with uh, the overhead irrigation. We've got a large spring-fed dam. Uh, we're very lucky to be able to irrigate. I saw it on my way in. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, liquid gold. We plant in April. We usually do sugarcane mulch and we've had real trouble with weeds during winter and we were put on a biodegradable weed mat produced here on the Sunshine Coast, which worked a treat for us this year, cutting down our work for the weeds throughout the winter. And I'm hoping to go up to about 10,000, you know, just over a quarter acre. And how do you juggle this with your day jobs? Because you're a paramedic and you work as a part-time teacher aide at the local school. It does take a lot of juggling, but we thoroughly enjoy it. To uh, come home from work, to get out on the tractor once it's germinating, to see it come through the mulch. It's such a wonderful feeling. It's lovely. I think that's the benefit of going to the markets too and actually selling to the people who are going to eat it and their response and how much they love it and appreciate talking to the grower as well. It's nice to be there. And what about the feedback when they've used it and come back to chat to you? I love the foodies. <laughs> they have great reviews. Yeah, it's just wonderful how everyone supports us, especially in the Kin Kin area and surrounds and family. A lot of Christmas presents are going out of braids, which we're really happy about because they store a lot longer. And yeah, the general feedback is just how much flavour and moistness and that in the garlic, which they don't get at the shops from the you know imported stuff. And how do people react to the braiding? It must add value because it just looks so pretty. They are the most popular there, definitely. Uh, I think people like to see that hanging in the kitchen, cut a bulb off and uh, into the dinner. A lot of people don't like cutting them off because they look so good. <laughs> they don't want to use them. But I keep encouraging them to eat it because it tastes as good as it looks. We've just picked this lot down. So it's basically coming up the stalk, cleaning off the edges. We're doing groups of 10 this year. So keep them all the same weight so that we can do a general pricing. This is a two-person job. It is. That's why our labour on it is a little bit higher in our cost. So can you describe what you're doing? I gather the first three that I've selected to fit in nicely with each other. Richard then ties the three together with a little bit of twine, trims that off. So I've got my three sections to braid, just like plaiting really. And then we just basically add to the middle and fold over from the right, add to the middle, fold over from the left, add to the middle and continue that. We have had a lot of suggestions to add flowers, I'd love to do that if I had the time. <laughs> we well, could put time in there as well. We could. <laughs> the herb, that is. idea. <laughs> My girlfriend has done it and it looks fantastic. Smells. It's amazing. So now that I've done the 10 in there, I'm just continuing the plait up the stalk. So it looks and hangs well. Make sure it's straight. And then Richard ties off the end. And we put our Noosa Hinterland Garlic label on it. Oh, how good does that look? Voila. Trim off the top and ready for the markets. Nice and fresh. So how much do you charge a kilo? Because the imported garlic is a lot cheaper than Australian garlic. Yeah, that's true. And they are big bulbs. They are very lovely to look at, but the taste is just not there. $30 a kilo we're charging, where it can be in the uh, local fruit and veg for up to, you know, $60 a kilo. So... Again, how much do you pay? We feel uh, very happy to supply affordable local produce to our local community, you know, and that's what we're, we're doing it for. What's your favourite garlic-inspired recipe? 
Oh, I just like a garlic pasta. Just keep it simple. I think let the garlic kind of show its flavour. I love it roasted in the oven and then just popping it out of the skin. Yeah, just cut off the top, throw in some olive oil. Put it in with your roast. Um, garlic bread, we make a garlic butter. So many things. I'll even eat it raw. <laughs> Scrambled eggs with garlic's quite good too. One of our customers put me onto that one. And it's really good for you too. The health benefits are said to be very good. Well, I'll not even go as far as saying it may be a superfood. Body in the right position to have a nice correct turn. It's nine in the morning and the Queensland summer sun is already beating down. But that's not stopping Shelby Davis Hill from putting this horse through its paces. Okay, let's see if we can ask you to move behind quarters. The 23 year old from Gracemere in central Queensland started riding as a toddler and is now training to compete in the Special Olympic okay. World Games. I started at Riding for disabled at the age of two and a half years and we used it for therapy to help my muscles. I enjoyed it and then my dream was to go to the Olympics. I was choosing on what sport to go and then coach came up from Queensland and seen me ride and approach mum and dad to see if I would like to become will go down and try out for the Special Olympics and yeah. Okay, when you feel like you're ready to ask her to turn, you can ask her to turn. Hello, I'm Megan Hughes and I'm chatting to Shelby during a break in her training at Four Mile Farm just outside of Rockhampton. Shelby has represented Australia at the Special Olympics before, winning a medal at the Abu Dhabi Games in 2019. When I went over to Abu Dhabi, I won a fourth in trail, fifth in equitation, and a second in dressage. Her mum, Sandra Davis-Hill, says it was an incredible moment. It was interesting because she had to travel with the team, so it was like that separation of letting her go off to Abu Dhabi, out of, you know, away from us. And we travelled as a family to go over and watch, and it was, it was amazing to see all the athletes. We had four equestrians from Queensland travel over, which was wonderful. And to see her win a silver medal, God, you must have just been so proud. Absolutely, because the horses that they ride over there are so different to the horses that they ride here. They're, there's no grass, so they're like fed and they're just really goy. And I don't think a lot of them had seen a trail ride before or the pole, so they were very scared and skitsy. And just to see Shelb go out there and, and pick a horse that she was only allowed to have one ride on and say, yep, this is my horse, and then come home with the silver was amazing. The Special Olympics is a year-round multi-sports program for people with an intellectual disability. And as part of it is a World Games, which is hosted on a four-year cycle with summer and winter sports. Shelby has been on the Queensland team since 2013. And after missing out on a spot at the 2023 World Games in Berlin, now Shelby is gearing up and hitting the ring for the next round of competitions. I do dressage. I do equitation and I do trail. What's your favourite? Uh, dressage. So tell me about your training for the next Special Olympics. What sort of things are you doing? I just work on my uh, turning, my diagonals, 
my 20 meter circles, 10 meter circles, because like you don't know if there's going to be all different types of circles. In the, so you just want to get great accuracy in like your riding. Taya Bell is a riding coach at Four Mile Farm where Shelby trains and the pair started working together earlier this year. Ms Bell explains what their training is focusing on. So we practice what she'll encounter in her dressage tests and her working equitation and trail. So we're working on our accuracy, um, positioning the horse, how to adapt to different types of horses. It's in the Special Olympics you don't really know which horse you're going to have. So we like to practice on a wide variety of what we have available. So when Shelby encounters a different horse, she's more than capable of like, adapting to that horse. Talk me through, I guess, dressage. What sort of things do you do in a competition like that? So dressage is a choreographed routine set by our judges. Um, so everybody competes in the same routine and we're judged off our accuracy, the precision in which we move through the dressage, the relationship between the rider and the horse, whether the horse is comfortable or not, relaxation, whether the horse is listening to the rider's aids, stuff like that. Shelby has her sights set on the state championships next year, which if she gets through would lead her to the national championships and then potentially the World Games. Yeah, like that. Perfect. That story from Megan Hughes in central Queensland. And you can read more about Shelby's quest to represent Australia in equestrian. There's more on her story on our webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash rn. Just hit the link for Country Breakfast. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London year. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. With December 25th fast approaching, many people are already planning what's on the menu for Christmas lunch or dinner. But with some industries tipped to face an oversupply of produce this summer, there's plenty of farmers worrying about what to do with the excess. Producers are now calling on consumers to look for foods high in supply this Christmas, as Ashley Bagshaw reports. A year plagued by floods, fires and droughts has left many producers reeling from losses to their crops. But those who've seen a good season are experiencing a very different type of struggle, with the glutton industries like pineapples and red wine leaving producers worried. North Queensland pineapple grower John Zelenka says an unusually cold winter in Queensland, the state where the majority of the country's pineapples are produced, has spelled trouble for the industry. This year we've had an enormous amount of natural flowering to the point of in our smooth leaf, it's probably at about 50%, and in our hybrids, it's probably 80 or 90%. And do you have any idea what's brought on this flowering? I spoke to a couple of people, and they seem to think that it was that we had five very cold days in winter, and all the planets sort of aligned, and this, this actually happened. It caused it. It's the worst case of natural flowering in the history of the pineapple industry in Queensland. And I'm guessing you've spoken to growers across other regions as well then? 
Yeah, and everyone seems to be in the same situation. So the problem will be is the bulk of Queensland's pineapple crop is all going to come on over two or three months and then there will be less during the middle of the year. And so where does your fruit primarily go then? Uh, we supply all local markets around Mac- in the Mackay region, um, the IGAs and, and a lot of private fruit vendors and then we also send quite a bit to Brisbane and Melbourne. What is the plan going forward as a grower? I'm not quite sure. uh, We'll just have to see what we can do to get... I'll probably push to try and get even rid of even more in this region because I can... I'd be pretty assured that the price in the big markets in Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney will be not that high if there's a massive oversupply. They just need to eat a heap of pineapple over summer. And how many pineapples would each person have to eat? Four or five a day. North Queensland pineapple farmer John Zelenka. Meanwhile, South Australia's red wine sector has been experiencing an ongoing glut and producers are anticipating another tough year in 2023. Managing Director of Taylor's Wines Mitchell Taylor says the industry is continuing to struggle to find markets to send product to. Yes, we're seeing quite severe oversupply because we've had the factor with China a couple of years ago, all of a sudden decided to put horrendous tariffs on our wines of 218%. So all this red wine that that needed to be aged that was developed in the vineyards really hasn't found another place to go. So at the time when the uh, tariffs were put on, we actually had an undersupply situation. So I think this vintage coming up, vintage 2023 in the new year, we'll really see some big pressures. And unfortunately, a lot of the wineries just don't have capacity with their tanks to take the excess supply into the wineries. So I think we'll probably have to leave a lot of fruit um, out on the vineyard uh, for this season. Australian wine, still the domestic market is our biggest market and it's just, yeah, supporting um, our local producers would be really um, beneficial for everyone. Mitchell Taylor, Managing Director of Taylor's Wines. The avocado industry is also on the verge of another big crop. By 2026, the country's supply is anticipated to be at around 170,000 tonnes more than double the 80,000 tonnes produced in 2021. Sarah Tucker-Bame, an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, says while growers may not be seeing a repeat of the glut experienced in 2021, this year's crop is once again looking strong. We had a record crop last year and every growing region in Australia had a record crop, so it was a massive amount of avocados and we expected this year to be a lot lighter than it is. It, the avocados have produced well again <laughs> and, uh, and we're busy, but uh, thankfully the market is better because there's not quite influx that there was last year with all the other growing regions. It's looking good at the moment. Avocados are looking great for Christmas, so that's exciting. So Riverland House is still in season and will still be in season at Christmas and just after Christmas. And then WA House will also be in the market. And then we've changed from... Hass to lamb hass, which is the slightly bigger hass variety. And then there's the, the gorgeous emu egg reed 
that comes in as well. Reed has a little bit of a cult following. So if people have had Reed, they will know what Reed is. Reed is a big sort of round emu egg looking avocado. Lamb has almost looks identical to a has, except it's slightly bigger and it has like I call them shoulders. So it has like a where the where the stem goes, the shoulders are a little bit wider, I guess. And the has is lamb has is slightly bigger to the has. Sarah Tuckerbame, an avocado grower in South Australia's Riverland, ending that story with some good news about avo prices. The Murray-Darling Basin Authority is urgently seeking an alternative way to consult with First Nations communities in the Northern Basin after cutting ties with an advisory group it says failed to deliver on contracts. Under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, the authority is required to consult First Nations when approving water resource plans. But the authority's decision to cut ties with the Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations, or NBAN, could slow that process down, especially in New South Wales, the Basin State, with the most plans that need approval. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan has reported this story. Good morning, Kath. How are you going there, Clint? I'm well, thank you. Can you kick us off by just explaining what these water resource plans are and how they fit into the overall Murray-Darling Basin plan? Okay, so a water resource plan essentially sets out how water is shared and used in a particular part of the Murray-Darling Basin. And there's various valleys or sections throughout the basin, top to bottom, where water resource plans are required from state governments. Now, Each of the states has managed to submit their water resource plans, bar New South Wales, which is running drastically behind time in terms of its WRPs. I don't want to get too (laughs) bogged down with acronyms. Um, These are somewhat overdue. There was two of 20 required from New South Wales that have been approved by the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is the federal statutory authority that's got the gig of seeing the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which is basically a $13 billion, I guess you could call it environmental reform, which we're now 10 years into, and there's just a couple of years left on the clock ticking for that one. It often comes up at Senate estimates when the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is answering questions from from Senators about New South Wales's progress in getting these water resource plans Mm. submitted or approved. They've sent some back a few years ago. Do we know why New South Wales lags so far behind the other states in getting the plans approved? Well, Clint, as a student of the (laughs) Murray-Darling Basin Plan yourself, um, I'm sure it depends who you ask as to what response you'll get to that question. Look, a water resource plan is a pretty complicated thing. We know that water and natural resource is an incredibly sensitive issue. It's a difficult thing to get right the way that water is shared between competing interests. We know that New South Wales has tried to submit um, more WRPs than have actually been approved. There's been a bit of to and froing between the authority, uh, various suggestions about whether or not uh, the formatting or or um, the way that the, the plans have been submitted. There's ha- had to be a lot of toing and froing between the state and the authority. And I think you were actually reporting on estimates when we heard from the Inspector General for Water Compliance who had a pretty scathing attack at New South Wales on, uh, on some of the delays. Indeed, he did. And I guess part of the process of getting them approved is consulting with First Nations groups, essentially getting their input uh, Mm. and uh, hopefully approval about how the water will be used in a particular valley or area. So who or what was NBAN? 
Mm. Well, it is really important just before we get to who is who or what is NBAN, um, you might recall the new CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, a fellow by the name of Andrew McConville. He made sort of headlines earlier this year when he was appointed to the job in the dying days of the last parliament because he was um, a former head of the oil and gas lobby, APIA. Mm. He's now appointed to oversee this public authority, which has the task of seeing this $13 billion of taxpayer funds spent so that the water that exists in this largest river network in Australia can be shared between those competing interests of agriculture, environment, communities, industry. And he actually made an address to the National Rural Press Club just last month where he made a real thing about the role of First Nations and he believes the potential for river managers to learn from First Nations. He made remarks to the effect of saying that that river managers need to listen to First Nations. First Nations First Nations have a big role to play in how water is managed. It's something that's happened in this country for 40,000 years. And it was quite interesting. It was a real sort of highlight of this speech he made in his early tenure in this role. But it came just days now, we know, after cutting contracts or finalising contracts with NBAN, the Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations. Now, this is a, a group that was set up essentially at the beginning of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, bringing together some 20 nations across the Northern Basin um, in some ways so that the authority would have one single point of contact that it could go to to discuss the way that the river is managed and that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is implemented, giving it a point of contact. And we, and as I say, we now know that uh, it relied on its funding from the authority in many ways. And we know that Andrew McConville, the CEO, has written to the chair of NBAN, um, announcing that as of the 31st of October this year, those contracts will be finalised or have been finalised. And it's a significant amount of funding that they've lost. Does it essentially shut the organisation down? Well, we're talking about, uh, at that stage, the two main contracts, according to the MDBA, was $400,000 per annum contract um, provided to sustain MBAN's internal operations and a separate contract worth $1.25 million to provide a cultural flows project officer um, to assist nations to develop what's called cultural flows. I think your question was about the size of the organisation. Uh, I've heard that up to about five employees have worked there at one time. Unfortunately, Enban didn't want to speak to the ABC for this story at this stage, but we understand, according to Andrew McConville, that Enban has been, and this is quote, unable to deliver on its contractual commitments and we are now in the process of finalising these arrangements, end quote. Kath Sullivan, what does this actually mean for the New South Wales state government and its attempts to get these water resource plans done on time? Well, when we went to the New South Wales Water Minister, Kevin Anderson, he was reluctant to say too much about the water resource plans and the relationship between NBAN and the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, pointing out that it's an independent authority. Uh, He then went on to provide um, some evidence of the work that the New South 
Wales government is doing to consult with First Nations on, on various things, including an Aboriginal water policy or strategy or framework. Forgive me if I've got the, the title wrong there. Um, so it really is up to the authority to find a way to consult First Nations when it does come to, to approving or not approving the WRPs. And just finally, Kath, what does this all mean for the water recovery deadline under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which is June 2024? And, you know, we've t- talked about it a lot on this show about Mm. what the Herculean task ahead of Basin Mm. States to get the projects done on time. Well, I guess you could say that um, this is yet another way in which the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is running late. I mean, we don't even know at what stage New South Wales water resource plans are at, whether or not they'll be before the authority for approval or non-approval or what timeline. Um, We've spoken about the state-run projects. We know, according to Andrew McConville, the CEO of the MDBA, that they're running, they might be, um, the shortfall could be as much as half as what's expected to be recovered from those state-run water savings projects due to be recovered by June 2024. Um, One of the projects requires thousands of landholder agreements and I don't think that any of those have been signed to date. So there are plenty of areas in which water recovery is falling short or not on track to meet those deadlines and I guess the most significant thing to happen next in the Murray-Darling Basin um, apart from those people who are experiencing flooding there at the moment, the, next, the most important thing will be that early February meeting of state and federal water ministers when they're expected to come together to come up with a way in which they think that they can agree to recover the water uh, and deliver the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in full. We noticed that uh, on time seems to have slipped away from the lexicon. It's no longer part of the language. But we do know that Tony Klibersek, the Federal Water Minister, is committed to seeing the water recovered, including 450 gigalitres of extra water for the environment that was promised in return for South Australia's support for the plan. Um, I know you wanted a short answer and I feel like I'm I'm prattling on, but uh, this is one issue that just does not go away. It happens all the time when we talk water. That's why we love it. (laughs) Cal Sullivan, thank you very much for joining Country Breakfast. Always a pleasure, Clint. The National Regional Reporting Team's Cal Sullivan. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Matthew Crawford for bringing the final Country Breakfast for 2022 together. We'll be back next year with more stories about regional Australia, but for now it's time to hand the mic to the rest of the Saturday Morning Legends on ABC RN. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.